You're tuned to the Steve Donahue Show on CPL Radio, your one-stop daily source for Steve's take on the world of books. And now your host, the book critic who literally reads everything, Steve Donahue. Greetings, fellow patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library, and welcome back to the Steve Donahue Show, where we discuss bookish news, views, and reviews with a fervent gleam in our eye. <laughs> it's Monday, and first thing this morning, here at the Steve Donahue Show studios, my producer bounded into view with a broad smile on his face, suspiciously early, as he always is, and smelling, as he always does, of fresh cookie dough. And he said, good morning. Boy, do I have a great idea this morning. My eyes flew wide, and with a great deal of boyish hope in my voice, I said, you finally intend to resign in disgrace? <laughs> and he said, with a little bit of a wounded look on his face, no, no. Suddenly, we both had wounded looks on our faces. <laughs> but he explained to me his wonderful idea. It turns out, that the patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library do love themselves a murder mystery. <laughs> the murder mystery section of the library does hopping business. In, across all the spectrums of the different shapes and sizes that murder mysteries take today, from cozy mysteries to police procedurals to bloodletting thrillers. <laughs> uh, and it occurred to my producer uh, that it might be a good idea to regularly notice that, to, f to flash a spotlight on a different murder mystery series or a different murder mystery author every week. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> as of as of next week, or really now, we will be establishing Murder Monday, uh, where we talk about a different murder series, uh, preferably one that the library stocks, although I'm sure that I will that I will venture far afield over time, because there are a lot of Mondays in the eternity that we have to share with each other. <laughs> but before we get to individual murder mysteries and series, and authors, and types, and subgenres. I thought it might be a good idea to go over the rules. <laughs> and believe it or not, or maybe it's not that hard to believe, since the mystery genre has attracted armchair experts since the days of Sherlock Holmes, uh, many different people have opined on what the rules of a murder mystery are. There are lists like these for every genre, uh, including the other two of the big three being science fiction and romance, uh, but never so doctrinaire as with murder mysteries, and uh, never in such profusion. For the last century, rules about what you can and cannot do in a murder mystery have propped up with regularity uh, in the murder mystery journals and in uh, the occasional passing over to dictor of murder mystery authors and other authors, people who dabble in murder mysteries, but write hoity-toit other stuff. Uh, and one of the most well-known of those sets of rules was by Monsignor Robert, Ronald Knox. Uh, this was done almost a century ago. Uh, he did a detective story decalogue. And I thought it'd be interesting to go through his Ten Commandments for murder mysteries, especially since, number one, not all of you might have Monsignor Knox's Decalogue at your fingertips, and I thought it might be of interest to you, especially if you read Murder Mysteries. And number two, it's always fascinating to see to what extent these rules are still obeyed. That's the one thing about the rules that have been set forth for Murder Mysteries 
that seems to me to differentiate them from the rules that have occasionally been set forth for especially science fiction, also fantasy, is that those rules seem, as the saying goes, made to be broken, whereas murder mystery rules tend to be obeyed. And I think that might speak to deeper elements in why we like murder mysteries at all, and we will, of course, be dealing with those deeper elements as Murder Monday progresses. So first, but first I thought we'd look at Monsignor Knox's uh, detective story, Decalogue. And his first commandment goes like this. A criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. In other words, you can't, the, the subject has to be in relatively plain sight from the beginning. And not completely plain sight, because you cannot be reading his thoughts, where obviously he will be thinking about the crimes as he's planning them and then committing them and then relishing the memory of them. That would spoil things because of later rules. So rule number one is that the criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. Rule number two is all supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. This has always given me a bit of a smile since Roland Knox made his living and presumably his afterliving specifically by trafficking in supernatural elements. And yet in the murder mystery, he wants none of it. He draws this straight from Sherlock Holmes, who, who famously says no ghosts need apply. No supernatural elements and that also uh, impinges rather heavily on other rules, but the, you can see the gist of it. The gist of it is you have to be able to figure things out. They have to work according to the rules of the normal world. Uh, because if they don't, well, then water could be poison, in which case anything goes, in which case, in which case you don't have a murder mystery anymore, because the key to all of these rules and to all other rule, rule books that have been written for murder mysteries is that you can't have a place where anything goes. Uh, but let's, let's move on to, uh, to commandment number three. Not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. This is a rule that back in the late 1920s was speaking to an extremely prevalent gimmick in murder mysteries that isn't an extremely prevalent gimmick anymore. Back when Monsignor Knox was writing this, uh, exotic undetectable poisons and hidden rooms or passageways were absolutely rife throughout the pulp murder mysteries of the day that you could read. Absolutely rife. And he's uh, naturally limiting here, and you get the sense from this commandment that he'd rather eliminate them altogether. But he's he's limiting them uh, to not more than one. Uh, I have read, as I'm sure many of you have, uh, murder mysteries, especially Golden Age murder mysteries, that did have more than one. The typical gimmick, the way that this rule was flung down and danced upon, was for there to be a hidden room that itself had a hidden room. And I have read murder mysteries like that that were quite enjoyable. Usually, the murder mystery writer, in such a case, goes to great lengths to explain why they've shoehorned in such a cheesy element. Uh, it's, I think what Knox is getting at here is lazy writers. Lazy writers who use the hidden room or the hidden passageway to get around the, the restrictions of, for instance, a locked room mystery. And what he's doing by limiting this is trying to draw, I think, he's trying to draw attention. I, I have to presume here, I have to I have to suppose a bit, because Monsignor Knox and I haven't spoken in quite some time. <laughs> uh, but I think what he's trying to do here, apart from limiting the use of one particular gimmick, is to remind 
readers, and also obviously this list is for potential writers of murder mysteries, to go a little easy on laziness like that. And I like that. That's, uh, that's actually a very wise thing that he comes back to in, in many, many other commandments. Uh, commandment number four is no hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. This is what I mentioned a bit earlier. Uh, this was another rife thing in, in murder mysteries in his day. The, the undetectable poison that turns out to be a poison nobody's ever heard of, that is effectively magic. That is effectively the supernatural element. That effectively violates commandment number two. Uh, you want your poisons to be extremely well-known. You want them to be believably attainable by the poisoner and believably undetectable the whole course they're being administered. It's typical of most poisons that, that crop up in murder mysteries uh, that they are of a particular variety. Undetectable, meaning slow-acting and without any aftertaste. A poison that will kill you right away. <laughs> a poison that where you take it, you barely have one sip, and you are as stiff as a board on the study floor, will ordinarily be extremely detectable. Uh, and even back in the 1920s, murder mysteries, murder mystery authors knew that they were up against coronary science, forensic medicine. And we're constantly coming up with cheesy ways to get around that, that Knox is having nothing of. So not only no previously unknown poisons, but also no weird scientific apparatuses. You want your murder victim to appear to die of uh, a brain aneurysm. And he does, and none of the victims are anywhere near him, and there's no forensic trail to anywhere. And then in the last page, you have the, the, the guilty party reveal that they used a special brainwave-inducing machine. Who wants to read that? <laughs> no, Knox is completely right in this case. Let's move on uh, to commandment number five, which is indelicately phrased. It is a, a phraseology from another time, but it does have a broader point. Uh, and commandment number five, brace yourselves, my gentle, my gentle fellow patrons, is no Chinaman must figure in the story. Now, on the surface, that looks like just blatant yellow wave, early 20th century bigotry. And probably there was a large element of that when Knox was writing that down. But it applies bro more broadly, and it applies still today, even though we wouldn't we wouldn't think about it or talk about it or especially write about it in those terms. I want to read you, uh, at risk of offending your delicate sensibilities a little more, I want to read you the, the brief elaboration that, that Knox gives. He gives elaborations for all of these rules. Uh, I want to read you his elaboration for this to see if we can't get a little bit closer to the heart of the matter. Uh, <clears throat> commandment number five, no Chinaman must figure in the story. Why this should be so, I do not know, unless we can find a reason for it in our Western habit of assuming that the celestial is over-equipped in the matter of brains and under-equipped in the matter of morals. <clears throat> I only offer it as a fact of observation that if you are turning over the pages of a book and come across some mention of, quote, the slit-like eyes of Chin Lu, close quote, you had best put it down at once. It is bad. The only exception which occurs to my mind, and there are probably others, is Lord Ernest Hamilton's tragedy, Four Tragedies of Memworth. I'd be willing to bet that anywhere in the state of Wisconsin, I am the only person who has read that book, and it is not salvageable. It is not an example of anything to hold up as, as doing anything right. It's wretched. But you see what Knox's larger point is. He's, in this case, lamentably, in terms of vocabulary and probably in terms of prejudice, lamentably, he is talking about the celestial, the Chinaman. But the, the main point, the essence of the point, 
looks not to a, a nationality or an ethnicity, but rather to an unknowability. So when and and Knox is using that unknowability as uh, he's bludgeoning it as an easy out, another piece of lazy writing on the part of the mystery author. That yes, we have all these other people who are potential suspects in the murder of you know uh, Lady Brackworth, uh, and they all have potential motives and potential weaknesses and potential strengths and potential justifications and potential alibis. But then, in addition to all of those people, I have what Monsignor Knox referred to as a Chinaman. And the, his own elaboration says that the thing that bothers him about that is not necessarily the place of origin, but rather the unknowability. And the same thing is true. You can, it takes a second to think about it to realize that that is still a bugboo of lazy murder mysteries, where there'll be a figure, a mysterious dark figure in a trench coat and a slouch hat lurking underneath the bridge or something like that. Or there'll be a mysterious stranger who blows into town and doesn't have any connection to any of the other suspects or to the victim. That for for we would never want to revise the phrase, but you can see that kind of lazy writing gives us a modern-day iteration of the Chinaman, and it must be avoided. Everyone has to be integrally connected to the mystery, to the murder. That is the point of this otherwise reprehensibly ra uh, phrased rule. Uh, so let's hurry on to commandment number six. No accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition which proves to be right. In other words, if he's at a country house and there have been two murders already and he suddenly has uh, the urge to visit the bathroom in the middle of the night and he comes across the murderer chortling into a tape recorder, that is bad. <laughs> that must not happen. No accident must ever help the detective. And the detective must never have an unguessable intuition where the, where the detective is just in the middle of going about ordinary daily events and suddenly says, ah, it was the gardener. Now, we, I'm sure I have read many examples, I'm sure you have as well, of absolutely fantastic murder mysteries, and especially thrillers. This tends to crop up more in thrillers these days than in murder mysteries, where there is a flash of intuition, and it seems almost on the surface the first read-through as if it's violating this commandment, but then it is not. But then you realize it is not. You realize there is such a thing as the penny dropping. There is such a thing as someone someone either consciously or unconsciously putting together the pieces that have been right in front of them. Uh, a terrific thriller example of this takes place at the climax of Thomas Harris's novel, The Red Dragon. Uh, those of you who read the novel will know what I mean. There is a moment at the end of that novel where the, the sleuth, the FBI specialist, the consultant, Will Graham, figures it out. In big capital letters, he figures it out. And he does it on what looks at first like a gigantic leap of intuition, but it turns out that the, that the steps were all there. That's permissible. But having that intuition come out of nowhere uh, is weak. And I have read many, many murder mysteries, especially short stories, but many, many murder mysteries where that happens, even in the present day, where the detective, whoever they are, whether a policeman or anything else, will come across one suspect after another in the crime that is to be solved and one of the suspects will just strike them wrong. Eh, just in my gut. I don't trust them. And in those murder, a surprising number of those murder mysteries where that happens, it turns out that person is guilty. That is to be avoided. <laughs> that is very lazy. Uh, commandment number seven. The detective must not himself commit the crime. And this is the only one of Monsignor Knox's rules that has no elaboration at all. It is simply a standalone line. And that's understandable, right? Uh, 
if the tech if the detective commits the crime then the whole thing is just a show-offy exercise on the part of the writer and isn't worth your time to read now there has to be a, a uh, for for reasons that we will elaborate on over the course of many many murder Mondays there has to be a hunter and a hunted there has to be a transgressor and a restorer of order um, commandment number eight is the detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. This also was a gimmick in uh, the 1920s that no doubt put a B in Monsignor Knox's bonnet that doesn't so much happen these days. I think a writer would, in a first draft, would get called on the carpet by an editor before the book ever got to press. If they did something like what Knox is referring to here, which is that you will have the detective crossing the heath, uh chatting over the, the particulars of the case with his assistant, and suddenly you'll be told he looked down and saw it. And the detective bends down and picks up this thing, tucks it in, in the, the pocket of his coat, and doesn't mention it to the assistant, doesn't tell it to the reader, doesn't explain it in any way until the big reveal at the end. That is very, very weak. <laughs> because, for the reasons that we've already elaborated, because the clue cannot possibly simply reveal the crime. The clue has to be one piece in the puzzle. And the the uh, contention at the backbone of much of what Monsignor Knox is writing here is that the reader should be involved in the solving of the puzzle. The reader should be involved in piecing the pieces together. So if somebody finds a piece and you don't know anything about it except that they found it, so all that you're reduced to doing is turning pages waiting for that MacGuffin to show up again and shed light on everything, that is a waste of time. That is a book best avoided. Uh, Commandment number nine, the stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly, but very slightly, below that of the average reader. My uh, objection to this commandment always uh, involves defending John Watson, uh, who is not nearly as he has been, he's not nearly as dim as he is typically portrayed on the screen, and it is a screen portrayal. Uh, Nigel Bruce's portrayal with Basil Rathbone that immortalized that version of Dr. Watson. Uh, I'm hoping that the typical characterization of Dr. Watson as a bumbling nincompoop has been permanently put to rest by the Sherlock TV show, which very rightly showed that what Watson is is our stand-in in the story. Never mind this business about very below, but very slightly below the intelligence of an average reader. Watson is the average person. In fact, he's above average. He's extremely perceptive. He's just not a super genius like Sherlock Holmes. That distinction was brought home in the, the TV series Sherlock, which will be among the many TV series and movies that we talk about on Murder Monday, uh, where you don't for a minute in the TV series suspect that Watson is a fool, that he's going to see something important and not know anything about it, not be able to tell that it's important. I might point out that this is not itself a new portrayal of Watson. Uh, the, the famous Granada Television BBC production of Jeremy Brett's realization of Sherlock Holmes, widely regarded as one of the greatest screen realizations of Holmes that's ever been done, featured a dim-witted, credulous Watson for its first few seasons. And then that Watson was replaced, replaced by, by Edward Hardwick, who played a much more realistic Watson, a Watson who was not a fool, who was a man of the world, who was extremely perceptive, just not Holmes. <laughs> There's no crime in not being the smartest person in the world. And you don't set apart the smartest person in the world by matching them with an idiot. And uh, and so Knox's rule here is that 
uh, the foil, the, the stupid friend of the detective, as he puts it. All detectives have these friends. They're not all stupid. Most of them aren't. The ones that are dramatically satisfying are the ones that aren't stupid. Uh, but what Knox is getting at here is uh, that that person, that character, must never be opaque to the reader. It's okay if the super genius, the freak of nature at the center spotlight, is a slightly bit opaque. But that friend can never be. That friend must keep up a running dialogue. That friend must include the reader. Uh... Knox is saying that that friend should be slightly less intelligent than the general reader, but not much less intelligent. I would argue that just as intelligent, or even a little bit more intelligent, will work just as well. Uh, although it's extremely impertinent for me to argue <laughs> with Monsignor Knox. And then we have uh, commandment number 10 in this decalogue. Twin brothers, or doubles generally, must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. <laughs> and some of you, who, especially those of you who only recently in the last 20 years or 30 years started reading Murder Mysteries, may be reading that and thinking, what on earth? <laughs> doubles or twins? But again, I refer you back to the time period that Knox is writing about. When he was writing about these sorts of rules, they were very often violated. <laughs> uh, where a murder mystery would seem airtight, it would seem completely unsolvable, and it would be because... It was an identical twin that committed the crime, and the identical twin is neither alluded to nor shown to the reader until the very last reveal. I have read many murder mysteries from the time period that is getting Knox so upset, in which not only was this rule violated, but it was violated in tandem with the rule about hidden clues, where the detective would learn at some point earlier in the novel that there was a twin or double of some kind, and that we would see the detective learn this, but we would not see what it was the detective was learning. That would be the reveal, that at, that at some crucial point in the story, the detective learned that a double was lurking around, and that is the trap that was set, or that is the explanation. And you don't need uh, the prescriptive fervor of, of Monsignor Knox to know that that is a great rule, because that is of a piece with most of the other rules here in this Decalogue, in that they are rules designed to prevent a murder mystery from being deeply unsatisfying to the reader. Uh, that is at the back of all of these rules, is that you don't want the, the murder mystery to be unsatisfying to the reader. It's not about the big reveal, and it's not about elevating your main detective at the expense of not only all the characters in the story and the stupid friend, but also the reader. Uh, that's a fine line to walk, and we will see in our upcoming Mondays how well are how poorly some of our murder mystery authors do with regard to these rules and a bunch of other rules that I will come up with on the spot. So that is your episode of the Steve Donahue Show for today, is to uh, go over the rules that I think you'll agree, after having reviewed that Decalogue, still largely apply to murder mysteries. But our goal for today was to go over those rules and look forward uh, to next Monday when we will crack our first case together. <laughs> so in the meantime, I'm going to sign off on this episode for now and wish you a day of happy reading. <laughs> the Steve Donahue Show is a production of CPL Radio, a service of the Cedarburg Public Library located in Cedarburg, Wisconsin.